All right. I don't know why I'm so nervous. We do Bible study literally every week. Um, maybe it's just because it's not, not our home. I don't know how you guys feel. Uh, what we're going to do is before we start, we're going to open with prayer. But before we do, we'll introduce our three panelists. Um, so we'll do self-introduction, starting with my brother on the left. This camera, right? Yes. Hi, guys. Uh, my name's Tim. And uh, me, I came here because uh, Casey, we were friends in high school. And yeah, I'm not really good at Bible study. Like It's kind of like my first time, but Casey told me to come, so let's, let's just do this. <laughs> Welcome, Tim. <laughs> Welcome to Bible study. Thank you for joining us. So hi, everyone. My name is Hanay. I am an organist, and uh, I met Casey through a fellow friend through Bible study and really excited to study the Word of God. Thanks for having me. Welcome, Hanay. Thank you. And lastly, our last sister. I, my name is Grace. Um, those who don't know me, I am friend with June because you probably all know June. I'm really excited to study Micah today. Thank you, Grace. All right. I'm excited. I'm so excited, guys. Thank you for joining us. Before we start, let's just bow um, our heads and our hearts in prayer. Let's ask the Spirit for enlightenment. Let's pray. God, we gather here today um, amidst the pandemic, Lord. And though only a few of us can be, can be gathered, uh, we trust that those that are joining with us, our brothers and sisters that are tuning in online, uh, Although they're not here with us physically, we know that the Spirit transcends through time and space. So as we gather in the name of Jesus to study the Word, we ask God that you speak to us, may you enlighten us, and transform us today. Lord, as we read your living Word today, may the Spirit be with us in our listening, in our speaking, in our interpretation, so that our meditation can be holy and pleasing to you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right. So we are here studying the book of Micah. Who has read the book of Micah before? Yeah, I've read it. Has it been a long time ago or is it pretty, pretty fresh? I would say, uh, in my case, um, probably pretty fresh. Pretty fresh. Anyone else? Or, if not Micah, any other prophetic books? I watched it on, uh, on YouTube, on the, you know that, that channel, Bible Study or something? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it, it had like a quick review of like 1 to 7 or something. Oh, nice, nice. On Micah. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Tim came prepared. <laughs> <laughs> what about Grace? I read it last year. Let it, read it last year. Okay, so it's still kind of fresh. So, is there anything that you've noticed in prophetic readings in general, in any of the major or minor prophetic books? Any patterns that you see? Anything you feel when you read it? Kind of enlightenment? <laughs> I was struck by just how contemporary the situation can be applied to today, because it's like God speaking into our circumstances. Like back then, he spoke into the circumstances of Israel. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's very interesting how that's relevant. Yeah, absolutely. It's crazy how timeless it is, right? Um, I think one thing that we're going to learn today is Michael is, is speaking at a specific time in history, a specific nation that's being reigned by specific kings. And so this letter or this work, this prophetic work was being preached to uh, a nation that is not Canada in a time that is 2,700 years ago, but still the profound implications of the meaning of God's word is still powerfully alive for us today. And I think that is so amazing. Thank you for sharing that. Would anyone else like, anyone else like to share before we uh, move on? I think what I really like about prophetic book is, all the book is like a love letter from God, but here you really has God's voice through prophets. And I think that's always so powerful. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Um, there's something really personal about the prophetic books. 
Let's take a look at the word Micah. I'm not sure if you guys like to do this, but whenever I start reading the Old Testament prophetic books, I like to know who's speaking and what their name means. Have you guys looked into what Micah means, the name Micah? So, who is like God? Or mm. who, is the Lord, who is like the Lord? Who is like the Lord? Her name is exactly right. Micah is thought to be a shortened form of a longer name called Mikayahu. And the Yah is Lord, is a short form for Yahweh. And so just like what Hanei said, the name of Micah means who is like the Lord. And we'll kind of see who the Lord or what character we see in Yahweh, in our God. And this question, the name of Micah's name will actually be answered in Micah 7. So that's going to be so amazing. That means you have to stick around for all seven sessions of Micah to find out what Micah's name means. Awesome. Thank you. Why don't we just start? We're going to go into the history, a little bit of history today. We're going to go into a little bit of what the concept of what prophecy is. Um, but we're going to kind of go through it as we progress in the book of Micah. So we're going to open up the study by reading the first couple of verses. Could someone be so kind as to read Micah chapter 1, verse 1, please? Anyone? Any volunteer? I can read it. Just number 1? Mm -hmm. 1 verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Morasheth during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. The vision he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Thank you. Why... Okay, well, first of all, what do we learn from this? What do we learn from this? So, it's very cool that the very first sentence is that uh, the word of the Lord that came to Micah so means to say that it's God's word mm -hmm. and not his own. Absolutely. That is so important here. You'll see a lot of the prophetic books start like that. The word of the Lord came to so-and-so. Usually son of blank, but... Mike is a little bit of an enigma here. We don't really know his background. Anything else we notice from this verse? He's from Morasheth. Yes, he's from Morasheth. That's uh, very important. Always his hometown. He's kind of like Amos. We did an Amos study sometime last year. And Amos was interesting because he came from the town of Tekoa, which is in Judah, and he's preaching to Israel. But who is Micah preaching to here? He saw a vision concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Yes, Samaria and Jerusalem. What's the significance of Samaria and Jerusalem? What do we know about Samaria? Capital cities of both kingdoms. So yes. As you have on the map there. So Israel is the north kingdom and the capital of Samaria. It's like on a hill country. A hill is on a hill. Mm -hmm. And then in the southern part, which is Judah, mm -hmm. uh, Jerusalem was the capital. And that was kind of like considered the holy city because it had the temple. Yes. Yes. Jerusalem is thought to be, or no, it's not thought to be. It's recorded that that's the city where the glory of God dwells. So this is primarily to whom Micah is speaking to. But Micah is not necessarily speaking to just the capital cities. If Micah was speaking to Canada, he might say he's addressing Toronto, but it could really be the entirety of the GTA. So what's happening is Micah is actually talking to all Israel and all Judah. That's what's happening here. What else do we learn from this first passage? Who are, who are, who's reigning? Ahaz and Hezekiah. Sorry? Ahaz and Hezekiah. Yes. We have, yes, we have Ahaz and we have Hezekiah, but who else do we have? These are the three kings. We oh, got, and Jotham. Yes, we got Jotham. Why is it so important for us to know who was reigning during these times and why? I felt like I read something about there was some kind of weird alliance that one of the kings made with Assyria at some point? Yes, yes. I can't remember which one. <laughs> yes. So generally, Jotham, if you read through Kings and Chronicles, is considered a good king. Ahaz is considered a wicked king. Even though he has his moments where he turns to God, and Hezekiah is considered a good king. 
So what Hane is talking about, we're going to explore in chapter two. But Ahaz makes an alliance with Assyria, with Assyria, and we're going to explore that later. Um, so basically, why it's important for us to know who was reigning during this time is so that we get a general idea of the historical context. If we know who's reigning during the time of the prophecies, we know basically what was happening. We know kind of the backdrop, the socioeconomic backdrop. We know the political backdrop. We know the um, kind of historical happenings of the area. And so we know why Micah is preaching to Israel and Judah and gives us a better understanding. So if Micah came and just preached words of judgment and hope, we wouldn't know what he's talking about because we don't understand what's happening in history. So history is going to be really important, especially for us today as we look at the introduction of uh, Micah. Can we have, so Tim read for us Micah 1. Can someone please read for us Hosea 1.1? And can someone please read for us Isaiah 1.1? I'll do Isaiah. I'll okay. Do whoever, whoever finds it first, you guys can just read it aloud. So the book of Isaiah, first verse of the first chapter. Vision seen by spiritual perception of Isaiah, son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah, the kingdom and Jerusalem, its capital, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah, mm -hmm. kings of Judah. Thank you. Can you read for us the other text, please, Grace? Hosea chapter 1, verse first. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, son of Biri, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the reign of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel. Mm -hmm. So what do we know already? What do we know? Isn't it so crazy how if we read the prophetic books separately, it's kind of like all scattered. But if we can link it to a generic timeline, to an overall timeline, we can see where all these prophets are coming in. So what do we already know? So Micah's contemporary to Isaiah. Yes. And? Hosea? Yes. So Hosea and Isaiah started ministry during Uzziah. And then Micah came when Jotham was reigning and they kind of did ministry together. So I don't know if they sat together in the same office and they were talking about what to preach, but you can certainly see the similarities in the three books in Hosea and Isaiah and in Micah because they're all contemporaries, meaning that they're all doing ministry at the same time. And so you'll see common elements and that means that Israel and Judah were all going through similar situations. If, if Isaiah was preaching about something different, if Michael is preaching about something different, if Hosea is preaching about something different, then we kind of get confused and we might think, are they speaking to the same Israel? Are they speaking to the same Judah? But when we see similarities in these three prophetic works, we know that Israel is dealing with one sin that all three prophets are addressing and Judah also is addressing with a common sin. So that's what we know. Why don't we look at this chart? So I created this chart. Um, it'll be shown up for you. It's called, it's just called the Micah chart. Um, it's not to scale because I did it through Word. Actually, I don't even have Microsoft Word. I did it through Google Sheets or no, sorry, Google Doc. So this is the best I could do with Google Doc and I can't increase the timeline or anything. But if you look at that, you see the prophets in the middle, right? To the left of the prophets, you'll see Israel, which is the Northern Kingdom. To the right, you'll see Judah which is the southern kingdom. And then to the far left, you'll see Syria, Aram. And to the far right, you'll see Assyria. So these are the kind of big players in the book of Micah. Um, so we're going to be looking and referring to this chart. Please mind that it is not scaled properly, but you could kind of tell because of the dates where it lines up. And there's three kings that are highlighted. Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. That's who Micah was ministering to. Micah is also interesting because Micah is speaking to both Israel and Judah. So that's really cool too. So we're going to keep referring back to this chart. All right. So we basically know to whom Micah's 
preaching to. We know who the kings that were reigning are. So why don't we take this time to read the next bit? We'll read Micah 1, 3 to 5. Can anyone read for us Micah chapter 1, verses 3 to 5, please? Yes, I'll read. <laughs> Thank you. Look, the Lord is coming from his dwelling place. He comes down and treads the high places of the earth. The mountains melt beneath him, and the valleys split apart like wax before the fire, like water rushing down a slope. All this is because of Jacob's transgression, because of the sins of the house of Israel. What is Jacob's transgression? Oh, is it not Samaria? What is Judah's high place? Is it not Jerusalem? Mm -hmm. Thank you, Tim. All right. So now we get a little bit more in depth of why Micah's here. Why is Micah prophesying and preaching? Israel and to Judah. In my translation, it expands on um, when he says in verse 5, what is the transgression of Jacob? The idol worship of Samaria. What are the high places of idolatry in Judah? So it has to do with the idol worship that came as a result of this kind of political alliance with the foreign kingdom where it's like if you're under that political system you have to acknowledge their religious system as well and so other gods were being worshipped in the temple yeah it's so important to know why Micah's here now we see a lot of names we see Jacob we see Israel we see Judah what's the relationship between Jacob and Israel same person. they're the same right Jacob was given a new name. Jacob means the grabber of heels, right, in the book of Genesis. And then he gets, he gets a new name, and his new name is? Israel. Israel. Is Israel, one who contends with God. So whenever you see Micah addressing, Samar or ad addressing Jacob, you could consider it as Israel. But also Samaria is the capital of Israel, as Hanay said. So Samaria... Israel and Jacob are synonymous, at least in this chapter. And then Judah and Jerusalem, the capital of Judah, is kind of synonymous. At least until we get to chapter 3 or 4. And we'll explain that a little bit later. So, what happened to Israel? Israel was supposed to be the united kind of chosen nation of God. So where did this sin come from? Anyone want to give us, anyone have an idea? It kind of, I'll give you a hint. It was after David. Well, David sinned too. Solomon. But on a national level. Sorry. Did you say Solomon? Solomon? Solomon, yeah. yes. So what wife. happened with Solomon? What happened with King Solomon? I think it was over 500 wives. Or something like that. Like yeah. he, he married lots of foreign nations, um, <laughs> women from foreign nations. Yeah, exactly. God warned Israel, first of all, to have one spouse, right? To have, because, uh, and, and they had to be within Israel because God or Moses said they would be a snare. They would be a snare for them. So Solomon had like a thousand. Yeah, I think, if I remember correctly, he had 700 wives yeah, and 300 like concubines. Yeah. Something like that. Something yeah. wild. I can't even imagine. That's, that's insane. And <laughs> what this was, and I think Hanin mentioned it earlier, what was marriage basically for Solomon? I don't think he loved all 1,000 of his partners. Idolatry? Idolatry was certainly a result of it. But why do you think Solomon married all these women outside? Oh, of you're talking church? about like the, the political analysis? Yeah. So marriage for Solomon was kind of a way to make an alliance with other nations. So to secure the power of Israel, Solomon first married Pharaoh's daughter. And so because they're like family now, they can't go to war. So they got to help each other out. And so it's like that. So imagine a thousand partners with different people, uh, connects different royal families. And this really, this really solidified Solomon's power. And so after Solomon was king, do we know what happened? This is where things get a little hazy. We go into the first king, or no, we go into the kings, we go into the chronicles. What happened? Solomon had a son, and Solomon's son name is 
It's really difficult name to know. It's not a memorable name. Rehoboam. Yeah, Rehoboam, right? So Solomon died. And after Solomon died, you have Rehoboam, the king Rehoboam that takes over. But Solomon was doing this grand national project. And he was really fortifying Israel. But not just that, but he was building the temple of, of the Lord. And so when you read the scale of this national project, it's massive. Who's going to build all this stuff? Who's going to carry the materials, bring it from the other nation? Who's going to put it into place? Who's going to construct it? Who is it? After Solomon? No, during Solomon's reign, when, when, they, when he was building the temple. Solomon? <laughs> Solomon <laughs> took a break, and then he was like, constructing the temple with the rubble, polishing it, putting all the, the articles of gold. He, he basically enforced manual labor, and he used the people of Israel. So when we look at the temple of Jerusalem, we think, wow, that's an amazing kind of tribute that King Solomon makes to God, and it was. But God specifically says he doesn't need a house. But what Solomon does is Solomon wants to have because it's a promise that David made with God, and so he uses the people of Israel to build it. So these people are worn out. These people are forced to labor for the sake of building up the temple. And so they build up the temple. And so after King Solomon dies, King Rehoboam, his son, comes to reign. And King Jeroboam the first, that might be a more familiar name, he and a whole bunch of people come to Rehoboam and they say, Hey man, your dad was really tough on us. He made us work hard. We're tired. Can you give us a break? That's basically what they're asking. And then... Rehoboam has two options. He can either give his people a break, or he could just continue to be kind of a tyrant to them. So he asks the elders, and the elders say, you know what, King Rehoboam, I think these guys are right. King Solomon worked them too hard. We should just let them go easy a little bit. And then he's like, okay, let me just think about it. He takes it to his friends. And think about all his friends. He's probably rich. They're probably all royal. Rehoboam's like, these guys want an easier time. What do you think? And their friend's like, Listen to them. Just let them work. Just let them work for you. And what happened is Rehoboam says, I'm sorry, guys, I've heard all your concerns, but nothing is going to change. And so people get mad. People get angry. And so you have Jeroboam that leads a revolt. But God actually comes to Jeroboam and God tells Jeroboam, Hey, I'm going to rip out, I'm going to snatch 10 tribes of Israel and I'm going to give it to you. How many tribes of Israel are there? There's 12 tribes of Israel. God says, I'll give you 10 tribes of Israel so that you can lead them administering justice, serving me as God, as my people, I'll be your God. Just obey my commandments. Walk humbly with me. That's what God says to Jeroboam. But God says to Jeroboam, I can't give you all 12 because of my promise to King David. King David was so loyal to me. He's a friend of mine. He was after my own heart. So I'm going to leave them. Two tribes. So they have Judah. And Benjamin. Judah is the bigger of the tribe, which is why it's called Judah, the tribe of the southern kingdom of Judah. And then Israel takes 10 tribes and they become the northern kingdom of Israel. That's how the split happened. So this was never like this. This was the united nation of Israel. It used to be one nation, but there was civil war. And what happened was they split. And then after they split, Ephraim. Sometimes if you read the prophetic books, Ephraim will be referred to as Israel because they were the bigger nation. Do you remember when, uh, when Ephraim and Manasseh were being blessed? They were blessed backwards, remember? And so basically Ephraim becomes the bigger kind of nation, so they become known as the powerhouse of Israel. And so there's civil war in Israel that happened. The civil war that happens from 931 BC to around 860 BC. So there's civil war. Israel and Judah, they're just ripping at each other. They're fighting each other. They hate each other. And what happens is there is, in a distant land, Assyria. Assyria in a very distant land. They're starting to grow in power. They're starting to grow in power. And they move along the coast. Going to use a heavy right here. They move along the coast and they come down and they're just 
ready to conquer everyone down the coast. And so what happens is they see Assyria growing in power. And these guys here, who are all relatively small compared to Assyria, they say, we've got to do something about this. Assyria is mad. And so they create a coalition. So it's, you got, you got kind of these coastal nations here, Philistia, you got Ammon, you have Moab, you have Adam, you have Israel, you have Syria, they kind of create a coalition, and they stand up against Assyria, and then they beat them. After they stand up to Assyria and they beat them, there's no enemy, so they go back to being at war, because look at their borders, right? The borders keep expanding and shrinking. So if they have no common enemy, they'll just keep destroying each other. And what happens is Israel and Judah, who are fighting each other, see that everyone's just fighting around them. They're like, why don't we team up? They say, let's team up. So what Israel and Judah does is they team up. And they team up. You got Uzziah and you have Jeroboam, and Jeroboam is the king of the king of Israel. You have Uzziah, the king of Judah. They team up. And what they do is Israel defeats everyone to the north. They, de they defeat. They defeat Syria. They defeat Moab. They defeat Ammon. They defeat the coastal regions. And what they do is they control. There's something called the Transjordan Highway. And this is pretty important. There's a highway that kind of runs. It comes from the land and it comes down here to the right of the Jordan and it goes down. And the reason why this is important is because it's like a trade route. Got a trade out here, and then there's another highway. There's a coastal highway that goes down the coast like this. So Israel decides to control the Transjordan Highway, the King's Highway, and Judah, because there's like hills here. This is all hills. They control this high, the coastal highway, and so they control all the trade routes. And so Israel and Judah were always fighting each other. And because they were always fighting each other, they were never at peace. What happens is suddenly they team up and they control all the trade routes. Why is the coastal route important? Mm. Trade? You gotta, send, you gotta ship them off. So you got all these ports on the coast. So Judah controls that. Israel controls this. They let each other use each other's highway, but they tax other people to use their highway. They have an unrestricted transport of imports and exports. And it's just wild. They, they have a huge economic boom. So at this time, Egypt is weak. Egypt is a powerful nation. Assyria is in shambles. And as they said, Israel and Judah, but mostly Israel, start to turn away from God, and they start to rely on their own strength. They rely on their own riches, and they start oppressing the poor. They totally neglect what God told them to do, which is to take care of the foreigners, the widows, and the fatherless, and they just do whatever they want. They exploit, they bribe the courts, they steal the land that God had allocated for them, Every seven years, slaves were supposed to go free, but they didn't let them free. Every 49 years, the 50th year, you have the year of Jubilee, where all debts are returned, but they didn't return debt. So there was debt occurring, and there was debt stacking on debt. It's debt stacking on debt. And so people are just extremely exploited. That is where Amos comes. So we did our Amos Bible study. So Amos came to Israel, and Amos said, guys, you really have to change what you're doing. Otherwise, something bad is going to happen. What we learn is, as we read through the Kings and Chronicles, they didn't listen to him. That's why Micah came in response to their rejection of him. So we did a huge Amos Bible study. It's got nine chapters, but we spent so much time on it. You can't go through all of it. But there's something that we learned that was so important. I think Grace was at the Amos study. Mm -hmm. Were you the only one there? Do you remember some of the reasons why Amos came and said God is really upset at you guys? What are some of those reasons? Um, I think a lot of the reasons were what you said. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember calling the rich woman, like that cow. Yeah, the Bashan. <laughs> the woman of Bashan. Amos called cows. 
So um, what happened was they're exploiting. But then here is what's really critical. If you read through the Kings and if you read through the Chronicles, there's two standards. Do you know what the standards are to measure a king? It's not how rich you are. It's not how, many mili how much military might you have. What are the two standards in which the kings of Israel and Judah are based on? How are they measured? Whether they worship the Lord. Yeah, whether they worship the Lord or not. There's two examples. One is King David. So if you're a good king, you are compared to King David. If you were a king that didn't worship the Lord, turned Israel or Judah away from God, you're compared to Jeroboam. Why do you think Jeroboam the first was considered a wicked king? Instead of following God's precepts, he just followed his own Yeah, mind. exactly. So Jeroboam, if you remember Jeroboam and Rehoboam, they were the... Uh, Jeroboam was the first king of the northern tribe or North, northern kingdom of Israel. Jeroboam was the uh, king of the southern kingdom of Israel. Here's what happened. So if you have, you have King Jeroboam here, you have King Rehoboam here. Okay? This is Jerusalem. This is where the worship happened. So imagine if you're King Jeroboam and during like the three biggest festivals, everyone has to go to the Temple of Jerusalem. What do you think is going to happen? Everyone from Israel is going to go down to Jerusalem. So Jeroboam thinks, if my people keep going to the light of Judah, they're going to be unified. I'm going to lose my power. I know that Jeroboam is the rightful king. He's a Davidic king. And so he says, this is what I'm going to do instead. I'm going to create a place of worship in Dan. I'm going to create a place of worship in Bethel. And instead of going to Jerusalem, you guys can worship at Bethel. If you're up here, you could worship at Dan. And what does he put there? Think of Exodus. Oh, did he take the ark? Or did he just put stones up? Yes. But he also crafted two golden cows. He crafted two golden cows. One golden calf here, one golden calf, golden calf here. He says exactly what Aaron says. This is your God who brought you out of Egypt. It's in Exodus, I think, 32. So he's like, don't go to Jerusalem to worship God. Worship God at Bethel. Worship God at Dan. So now you've got Yahweh, the one true living God. And then you have these golden calves that Moses was so angry about, that God was so angry about, he was ready to just... Toss them out. And then we have something else happening. Baal worship. You got Baal worship. And so Baal, if you um, read, if you remember Elijah, remember how Elijah did it with the prophets of Baal? It's because the Baal worship has become so prevalent in Israel. It's just become so crazy that the norm became Baal worship. There's, I think, only around, I can't remember, I think it was 4,000 or 7,000 um, non-Baal worshippers left. But when Jeroboam did this, only Levites are allowed to work in the temple. But Jeroboam, he called upon people that were non-Levites. And so you got people at Bethel, you got people at Dan who are non-Levites that's kind of working in the temple. So all the Levites come down south to Judah. And so that's why Judah becomes more of a faithful, not completely faithful, but more of a faithful nation. Because all the Levites are like, what the heck, that's our job. So they come down, they come to Judah, and Israel just starts slowly veering off course. They start worshipping other gods. They have this kind of weird syncretism, sinking, like like matching, they have a weird syncretistic kind of Frankenstein version of, of their religion where they worship Yahweh, they worship the two golden calves, they worship Ashura and, and Baal, and they kind of like mix it all together into one faith. And so Israel is really starting to lose their way. Oh man, it's already 807. Um, I want to cover one more thing, which is a huge, huge theme. 
Jonah. Do you guys remember Jonah? So if you look at this sheet here, if you look at this sheet here, you got Jonah in the middle, you have Amos, and then Hosea, then Micah, Isaiah, so on and so forth. Jonah comes in 2 Kings to Jeroboam. So this is after there was a coalition. It's called the Battle of Karpar. After, the coal, after these little guys stood up to Assyria, Assyria is having internal conflict. Egypt is having internal conflict. They're being attacked on all sides, so there's peace. So Jonah comes to Jeroboam, and Jonah said, God is going to expand your kingdom. God is going to expand your borders. And so that really happens, right? They have an economic boom, and so they start getting bigger and bigger. But then Amos comes. This is so, this is so important. Amos comes and says, what you guys are doing is not pleasing God. So what's going to happen is that you're going to lose your border. It's in Amos 6. It's a, he says your borders will be lost. So Israel border, Amos comes and prophesies that their wealth is going to be decreased. Their power is going to be decreased. Their borders are going to be decreased. Who remembers the book of Jonah? About... Where did Jonah go to preach? You mean like when he went to Nineveh? He went to Nineveh. Nineveh is the capital of Syria, right? And so after these guys defeated Assyria, Assyria is at the all-time low. They're small, and they're about to be destroyed. Jonah goes and preaches to Israel, and he prophesies that the borders are going to get bigger. But then as they turn away from God, Amos comes and says, your border is going to get smaller. And while he says your border is going to get smaller, Jonah comes to Assyria because the word of the Lord comes to Jonah, son of Amittai, just go to Nineveh and preach to them where they're going to be destroyed in 40 days. So Jonah preaches that Nineveh is going to be destroyed. But what does the king of Assyria do? He repents. They repent. So what we have here is Israel, who's supposed to be the chosen people of God, are not repentant. Assyria, that's a foreign nation that speaks totally different language, who they don't, they don't even know who God is, Jonah goes to them and then they repent. Amos says Israel's border is going to get smaller. And the reason is because Assyria repents to God, and so they begin getting larger and larger and larger. Isn't that crazy how it's all connected? So right now we've connected Jonah with Hosea, or sorry, Jonah with Amos, and we connect it with a little bit of Micah. But what happens is Hosea also comes. He's also preaching. He's also doing ministry, ministry in the time of Isaiah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. So Hosea comes, and Hosea says in chapter 8, God will raise up this series. So what we have, what we have happening here is there is political change. There is change in power dynamics. But is it Assyria that's doing it? Is it Israel that's doing it? Is it all these other nations that are increasing their own borders or decreasing their own borders? How did Assyria get? How did Assyria not collapse? They repented. They repented to God, and so basically the underlying theme of all these prophets is that God is the one that's orchestrating the collapsing and the enlarging of the borders. This is so important because Israel thinks they're powerful, but it's really God through Jonah said, I will expand your borders, right? God is the one that orchestrated that. And then Amos came and said, Amos said, your borders will get smaller, but it's not because the other guys got stronger because God used Assyria as an instrument to really get their uh, act together, there's a king called Tiglath Pileser III. Tiglath Pileser III. I'm not sure if you have heard of that name. It's a name that comes up, but Tiglath Pileser III really has a reform in Assyria. They really get things together. They reform the government, and they, uh, they, they had internal conflict, but they reform the government to get bigger. So Amos prophesies to Israel when Assyria is weakening. Jonah prophesized, or sorry, uh, Jonah prophesies to Assyria when they're at their all-time low. As Assyria is getting bigger, Amos is prophesying to Israel. And now Micah 
prophesied to Israel and Judah, but Assyria is big again, and Assyria is now a superpower again. Just from looking at history, we can tell that it is God that is orchestrating these things for the sake of turning Israel and Judah back to him. And so God is really working on this macro, kind of universal, international scale so that he could turn his people back to him. And I think that is an amazing reality that we have to not forget. It doesn't stop here. You guys heard of the Babylonians? So Babylonia is kind of like South Iraq. Assyria is kind of like North Iraq. What happens is after Assyria comes, and I think Hanay kind of alluded to this, Assyria comes and wipes out Israel, wipes out um, Syria, wipes out all these guys here. Assyria becomes obnoxious. They forget that in Nineveh they repent. They become obnoxious. So what is what happens? You got the Babylonians. You read the prophet Nahum. Nahum says, Assyria, you become so obnoxious, God's going to raise up Babylonians. So these guys have a big one. But secretly, God is raising up the Babylonian one. So the Babylonians are coming, and God is using Babylonia as an instrument to discipline Assyria. And then after Babylonia becomes obnoxious, they take the people of Judah away. They forget that it was God that increased them. So Babylonia, what? They're big. But then if you read Isaiah, God is raising Cyrus, the great Persia. So Babylonia is becoming obnoxious, so God calls Cyrus the Great from Persia to come. And then you read the book of Daniel, and it prophesies about the Roman Empire and eventually the kingdom of God. And so you can't just look history, look at history historically. You have to really look at it through the lens of the prophets where God is the one that's orchestrating all the political happenings, all these moving pieces of the puzzles. So that for the real off chance that Judah and Israel might turn back to God. That's basically what we're looking at in the book of Proverbs, and that's what we're going to be looking at in the book of Micah. It's super important. All right, so that's the reality. That's the political reality of the world that we're in. That's the kind of prophetic lens. If that's the reality, what is a prophecy? Let's kind of explore the pop culture idea of what a prophecy is. What is a prophecy? So some people equate it with like telling the future, predicting something. Yes. Have you guys seen The Matrix? My yes. favorite movie. <laughs> you got the Oracle, right? And the Oracle makes a prophecy that the one is going to return to the source and all this. By the way, it's, I think it's an allegory, a very messianic allegory. That's besides the point. That's kind of what pop culture thinks prophecy when they read scripture. What do you think biblical prophecy is? Uh, it, there's an element of uh, interpreting message from God. Yes. Yes. It's basically hearing. So the word of the Lord comes to the prophet. So it's hearing the reality of God. It's hearing God's message. And it's portraying it exactly to the recipients that God wants that God wants to deliver the message to. So a lot of people think prophecy is like like fortune telling. God building prophecy is kind of like predicting the future, and that could be a part of prophecy, but it's not all of prophecy. There is one analogy that I love using. One metaphor. There's no way if you guys. Have been tuning into the sermons the past couple of weeks. I spoke a little bit about what a prophecy might be. I explained it as when you go to the doctors, when you go to the physician's office. If you eat junk food, I really thought of this because of Super Saiyan. If you guys watched it, it's this guy who goes on a mission to eat McDonald's for three meals a day for 30 days. And if they say, Do you want it supersized? You have to say yes. And so this guy who's on a healthy diet, I think his girlfriend was a vegan. It was a craze at the time when it came out. What happened was, I saw a little bit of prophecy in that. So he keeps eating junk food, and he doesn't feel so good. So he goes to the doctor, and the doctor says, Hey, man, you got to really stop eating the weeds. 
Otherwise, you're going to get really sick. He doesn't listen. He keeps, because it's for the sake of his project, right? So he keeps consuming more junk food, more junk food. Then he comes to the doctor because things aren't right. And then the doctor says, if you keep this up, you're going to really get sick. And that's kind of what the prophecy is. If you keep eating junk food, you're going to gain weight. <laughs> if you keep eating junk food, your metabolism is going to slow down. You might get an insulin spike. You might get type 2 diabetes. Is the doctor predicting the future? What do you think? Well, it's like an actual consequence of like... The doctor's just telling you how it is. Right? It's just reality. And so the first time you realize you're breaking out, you don't know why you're breaking out, you go to the doctor and the doctor says, have you been eating, eating a lot of junk food, high sodium, high sugar diet, you see? The doctor says, if you eat that, you're going to keep breaking out. Next, you go back, and then you realize you're gaining weight. Doctor, why am I gaining weight? Well, if you keep eating, if you keep, keep living the lifestyle that you're going to live, then you're going to keep gaining weight. And then you go through these series of kind of unfortunate transformations because you are really fighting against the reality of the universe. You're kind of, it's like, it's like the medical reality. And so what happens is the physician is not really telling the future. They're just telling it as it is. If you keep living the life that you live, something bad is going to happen. That's kind of what a prophecy is like. When we read the prophetic books, do you think that the prophets just pull out curses out of their sleeves and say, you're going to get this? Or do you think they have, like put all the curses in a hat and then they like kind of draw <laughs> and they're like, you're going to get, this is what's going to happen to you. How do you think the prophecy happens? What do you think is happening? What, in what backdrop does a prophecy tell their, does a prophet tell their prophecy? So, in this case, uh, it seems like he's getting a vision, and it's very, very stark imagery, like, for example, God as the judge coming down on the mountains, and like what, like uh, Tim was reading, with the mountains on melting like wax. Yeah. Kind of thing under God's presence. Yeah. By the way, that's borrowed from, Stops far from the psalter. So Micah isn't using new language, he's not using new metaphor. But what he's doing is he's telling the truth of what's going to happen by thinking back to the covenantal blessings and the covenantal curses. I don't know if we have time to actually go into the rest of Micah, but I want to go over the covenantal blessings and curses because it's so important in understanding prophets. Uh, we're going to turn to this covenantal blessings and covenantal curses. It's from Leviticus 26, and it's from Deuteronomy 28. I think before we conclude, we're going to just kind of see some patterns. We're going to kind of see some patterns and observe what's happening. Can someone read through the covenantal blessings, please? It's really short. I'll read it. Please, please. Thank you. Rain and crop yield and safety in the land. Um, peace, security of mind, no fear, removal of beasts, swords, and enemies, and fruitful, bountiful, and national freedom. Yeah, so it's kind of like awesome. Like, if you want, I'm going to keep my blessing for all this blessing. Someone read the covenant of Disease and fever, defeated by enemies and paranoia, security, drought, reverse of rain. If you remain hostile, wild animals, reversal of removal of beasts. If in spite of these things bring the sword, reversal of removal, reversal or removal of sword and enemies. Yeah, so, so sorry, so we get the idea. We get the idea. Long. God, God for us all these blessings of Israel, and he says, but if you turn away from me, this is going to be reversed. If we keep doing it, this is going to be reversed. If you keep doing it, this is going to be It's kind of like a father and a, and a child, really, right? It's like the child has all the privilege and the kind of benefits of living with their parents, and then they get grounded. They kind of get something taken away. They continue to misbehave. They get something taken away. That's kind of the pattern that we see in Leviticus 26. What about Leviticus 28? If we go to Leviticus, I'm oh, sorry, if we go to Deuteronomy 28, which is also a covenantal blessing in curses. So this is basically right before they're about to enter the promised land in Deuteronomy. This is what Moses is telling them. It's kind of the same. 
We're not going to read through all of it, but it's kind of the same. Covenantal blessing is like this kind of huge heap that God puts on them. And then the covenantal curses are a little bit of an undoing of those blessings. That's kind of what we notice. And if you notice, if you look at Leviticus 26 and if you look at Deuteronomy 28, it's so important. This is the most important part of the covenantal blessings and curses, which is at the end. What do you see at the end? Renewal of covenant. Yeah. Always, always, always an opportunity to come back to God. That's basically the basis of the covenant. And so when you see some of these things happening, for example, you open like a medical, uh, you go to WebMD and you search, I have, I have acne and I'm gaining weight. It kind of gives you, it, that, that's a symptom, right? So a whole bunch of kind of like a whole bunch of causes to that symptom. What the covenantal cursings kind of act like is the people of Israel and the people of Judah can look at their lives, compare it with reality, and they can kind of get a sense as to what their symptoms are. And so it's like you look at WebMD and you search up your symptom, and it's like you're just eating too much sodium. You're just eating too much sugar, if we go back to that metaphor. But there is always a way to renew the covenant, which is basically you just start eating healthier. Sodium, you eat potassium, you stop eating all the glucose and you start eating natural fruit sugars and it'll basically re revert itself. That's kind of how we can look at the covenantal curses and blessings. All right, so if you look at the covenantal curses and blessings, what is a covenantal cursing then? Is it, is it really God cursing? His people Israel? Is it God really inflicting Israel with kind of these plagues and diseases and kind of calling in other nations to wipe them out? Is, is it God that's doing these things? Is it? Is it like, like what you said about the grounding? And grounds the kid? Yeah, a little bit. It's kind of like that. So, God gives all these blessings upon Israel, and then he lifts his grace. So when, so if you read through all of the covenantal verses at the end of it, when God lifts everything, Israel is not in the negative. Israel finds themselves exactly in the place that they were before they met God. Isn't that so wild? If you look at the other... If you look at the end of Deuteronomy 28, it's just this page here. Um, this is the covenant of curses continued. But if you read through this, plagues of Egypt will be inflicted on you. That's the plague that God inflicted on Egypt through Moses. You'll be deported to a foreign land. You'll serve your enemies. Uh, Lord will bring a nation against you from far away. The Lord will scatter you. There you'll worship other gods. You'll always live in insecurity. What does this look like? In the history of all of Israel, what does this basically look like? When they were in the slavery. Sorry? When they were in slavery. Where? In Egypt. In Egypt. Isn't that so wild? God comes and rescues Israel out of Egypt. But if Israel says, I don't want to follow you, God. If God says, I reject your blessings. If Israel, sorry, if Israel says, I reject your blessings, God. If Israel says, I want to be my own God then God's not going to do anything, but God's just going to say, if that's what you want, you can live that life. And so God has taken Israel out of Egypt, the house of slavery, but without God, they realize that slowly they're returning back to the place that they were at before they met God. So covenantal cursings are not really a curse. It's just God lifting His graces and Israel is finding themselves where they first began when God was never in their lives to begin with. This is the basis, I think, on which these prophecies come. So when we, when we continue to read through the book of Micah, we'll start to notice a lot of things that we can recall from the covenantal curses. And we have to remember that these were previous blessings that God had put upon Israel. And it's like God is kind of stepping away and so the graces of God is kind of receding. God's still there.
But God's saying, if you really want to see what life is like without me, because we're supposed to be in a relationship, then I'll show you what that's like. And the intent is to do it slowly. The intent is to do it incrementally, not to harm them, but so that Israel can realize that they really need God. They can't go through this thing called life without God. And so Micah, Amos, Hosea, Isaiah, all these prophets are coming and they say, hey guys, you guys got to wake up. Do you guys remember all these blessings that God brought about? If you're going to continue to live life without God, then you can kind of forget about these blessings. And so Micah comes and says, you guys rejected Amos. You see yourself in a situation where Syria is threatening you. Go look at the covenantal curses. This is what everyone signed up for, basically what Micah is saying. Micah is simply saying that the reality of God is here now. So when God comes down, the day of the Lord is supposed to be an amazing, kind of thrilling and joyous day. But on the flip side, if you have rejected God, then the day of the Lord can be a threatening day. And so that's really what Micah is saying here. We'll close off real quick. Can someone read verses 6 to 7? And we'll, we'll wrap up our study of Micah for today. Yes, please. Therefore, I, the Lord, will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, and I will pour down into the ravine and lay bare her foundation. And all her carved images shall be broken in pieces, and all her fires, all that man would gain from the desertion of God, shall be burned with fire. And all her idols will be laid waste. For from the hire of one harlot she gathered them, and to the hire of another harlot they shall return. Mm -hmm. Harlot is a word used here to describe Israel. Harlot is basically a prostitute. And do we remember what prostitution is a metaphor of? If so God. Like, like, yeah. like, like a covenantal relationship. Kind of back. Exactly. So God is portrayed as the faithful husband. And you could read this in Hosea. God is a faithful husband, but Israel is the promiscuous wife who, despite living under the protection of this house, keeps on straying away. She keeps doing what she wants, and she is equated to being kind of this harlot. And so that's, that's the situation that, that Micah is describing. Um, we're all out of time for today. I really wanted to get through all of Micah, but um, the introduction was uh, just kind of much. But we hope that everyone had a uh, blessed time. Thank you so much, panelists, for joining us for the Bible study. Um, next time, we'll for sure get through the rest of Micah 1, and we'll even look at Micah 2, and we'll explore the kind of geopolitical things that are happening what Hene talked about, about um, Syria and Israel joining together to fight Assyria. So Assyria is the judgment from God. Assyria is supposed to be this judgment from God, but Israel says, I'm not going to take that judgment. Israel says, if I am getting, if I'm gaining weight, I'm not going to eat healthier, I'm going to take diet weight loss pills. If I am getting diabetes, I'm not going to take care of the cause, I'm just going to stock up on going to the doctor and, and taking medication. That's kind of what Israel says to be. We're going to take a look at that. It's going to be awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. Before we close off, I'll close this up in prayer, and then you can all enjoy our evening. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this time given to us. And although it was short, um, is a time in which you could reflect on the realities of who you are. And God, we know that you are God that is the same yesterday and today and will continue to be tomorrow so god we understand that you were the same being as when micah was prophesying to the northern kingdom of israel and to the southern kingdom of judah so lord as we learn more and more who you are as we learn your character we pray that through the spirit we could learn to match you and like david we can be people sons and daughters that are after your own heart Lord, I trust that this time of meditation was holy and pleasing to you. 
may allow us to internalize and apply what we've learned to our lives. Lord, we give you all honor and glory it's in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for joining us. We'll send out the questions for the Bible quiz shortly, and I hope everyone has a wonderful evening. God bless.